I'm sure we're all familiar with the little quip or saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I understand the helpfulness, seemingly, of that saying as we're rearing children and as we're attempting to teach our sons and our daughters not to be overly sensitive and not to take every word to heart. And yet, that being said, I must also point out that that statement itself is really untrue. Words are powerful. They are powerful indeed, as you have been considering this summer on Sunday evenings, based on that statement found from Solomon in Proverbs 18. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the reason for that is because the tongue is that with which words are spoken. Words are emitted, so to speak, from one person to another, often even, as is the case presently, from one person to many people. And words carry weight. Words are powerful. They convey ideas. They shape thoughts. And they even mold beliefs. And so for that reason, words are very powerful and very important. Now, perhaps in no other area can we vividly, brightly see the importance of words any better than in the area of teaching and preaching. And I'm not talking about just any discipline when it comes to teaching. I'm specifically referring to gospel teaching and gospel preaching. You and I know that the Bible says much about that good work. In giving the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus would tell the apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Verse 20, Teaching them to observe all things, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And Matthew Stamp closed his gospel account with the word, Amen. In Mark's account, Jesus would say, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now notice the next verse with which you're very familiar. He that believeth. Notice the implied power in the words preached to produce belief. He that believeth, well, believeth what? The gospel. He that believeth the gospel and is baptized in accordance with the gospel shall be saved. But he that believeth not the gospel shall be damned. Preaching and teaching are not only urged or encouraged, preaching and teaching are commanded throughout God's word. How important then our selection of words when we are teaching and preaching biblical matters. Take your Bibles with me now and let's open to our text for the evening. Turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. 
I want us to begin at verse 10 and we'll read down through verse 14. And from this reading of about five or so verses, we hope to draw three major ideas, three major points, all of which pertaining to preaching and teaching the Word of God. First of all, let's read the text beginning at verse 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert or undermine whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake, for the sake of money, dishonorably acquired money. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, that is, a Cretan prophet, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Now notice what inspiration has to say about that uninspired assessment. Paul says, this witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Now, brothers and sisters, as I'm sure you're able to see, in reading these five verses together, we are dealing with matters that pertain to the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. But what I would like for us to draw specifically out of this text for our three points are these. Number one, we need to say somewhat about the message that is preached or taught. Number two, then, we need to say something about the motive behind the preaching and the teaching of that given message. And then finally, as we wrap up tonight, I want us to also observe a few things about the manner in which the preaching or the teaching is carried out. And so observe with me the message, the motive, and the manner. And all three of these concerns are important to us whether we be gospel preachers, whether we be Bible class or Bible school teachers, whether we teach publicly or whether we're sitting down privately at a kitchen table with a lost soul striving to evangelize and to teach that precious soul. Whatever the setting, public or private, some things we need to consider. Number one, let's think about the message. Now it's obvious here as we've read the text in Titus that not everybody presents the right message. Can we not see that? Notice there in verse 10 that Paul describes some of these as unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. You know, a deceiver is someone who is not presenting the proper message. Jesus in praying, John 17 and verse 17, He prayed to the Father, He said, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. When it comes to the Word of God, God's Word is absolute, knowable, spiritual truth. Therefore, for any person or group of persons to be labeled as unruly and vain talkers, vain indicating emptiness, 
that which is devoid of substance, that which is devoid of truth, and then for them to be labeled deceivers there in verse 10, it is obvious to us that whatever message they were proclaiming, whatever message they were teaching, it was not the Word of God. I think all the way back to the very beginning. My mind goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Well, even earlier, Genesis chapter 2. God had given His Word. We read in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, But of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God had given His Word there in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But then in the very next chapter, we find a deceiver. We find someone with vain words. We find someone bringing a message contrary to the Word of God that had earlier been given when the serpent possessed by the devil himself was used to tell Mother Eve, Ye shall not surely die. Brothers and sisters, as you and I read that in our English text, it denotes only the addition of one word. That's all. The negative word, not. And yet it completely changed the import and the meaning of that statement. It therefore became vain, empty of truth. It was deceptive. And as you and I know, not only from that Old Testament occurrence, but even from the New Testament commentary on it, as found in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2, as you and I know, Mother Eve was beguiled. She was deceived, believing that wrong message. And tragically, it forever altered the course of human history. Pandora's box, if you will, was veritably opened, allowing sin into the world of which we read in Romans chapter 5. And with the entrance of sin into this world, death came with it and mankind has not been the same ever since. Now you tell me, does it matter the message? Or to put it another way, does it matter the content the content, that which we teach or preach. And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. Yes, it matters. Hold your Bibles with me here in Titus. We'll be referring back to our text momentarily. But let's take just a brief journey through a couple of places in the book of Acts. Both of these concerning the Apostle Peter. Go with me, first of all, to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, where it's also involving the Apostle John with Peter. And I want you to notice that following their, following their imprisonment and their release, I want you to notice what happens there. Acts 5, I was actually turned to Acts 4, I apologize. Look with me at Acts 5 and verse 18. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison, not just Peter and John, that was chapter 4. Here's all of the apostles apparently. But the angel of the Lord, verse 19, by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. 
a heavenly intervention, a miraculous release. The angel of the Lord by night brought them forth and said, now mark verse 20, go, stand and speak. I like all three of those verbs. I think at times you and I need to be reminded of all three of those verbs. Number one, go. Get up and go. How content are we to to stay right in our little circle, as it were, and to keep teaching the same people we've been teaching for the last 10, 20, 40 years? Just, Just right in our little circle. The Bible says go. Stand. You know, there's a time when a man needs to take a stand. Oh, we've heard some of the little maxims, some of the little sayings. You know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything and things of that nature. But I'm here to tell you, we need to take a stand when it comes to truth. We need to take a stand for Bible doctrine, for Bible morality, and especially in our day and time, a time in which the very moral fabric of our nation is being eroded, it's being deteriorated. We need somebody to stand. To stand unashamedly. And then verb number three, open your mouth and speak. Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Friends, I'm here to tell you, words are powerful. And when we preach God's Word, when our message is the biblical message, when our message is the gospel message, that is the words or those are the words of life. I think about when Jesus was with the apostles in John chapter 6 about verse 63 and Jesus told them that it is the Spirit that quickeneth or maketh alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, Jesus said, they are Spirit and they are life. That's the message we need. Peter would later write in his first general epistle, 1 Peter 1, about verse 25, he would say, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word right here, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel was preached unto you. Brothers and sisters, as we all know, I trust. When it comes to gospel preaching and teaching, there is no substitute regarding the message, the content. It needs to be book chapter, and verse. It needs to be Scripture, not opinion. It needs to be truth, not theory. It needs to be Bible, the Word of God. We see that with Peter and the apostles in Acts 5. Now turn over with me to Acts 11, our other occurrence in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11 is really more of a recap chapter, somewhat of a summary chapter, if you will, from the standpoint that really the teaching and the conversion of Cornelius occurs back in chapter 10. But after that had occurred in chapter 11, we're able to read somewhat of the recap concerning those events, if you will. So notice with me in verse 12, chapter 11 and verse 12. 
Here, Peter recounts that. And he said, The Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house, namely the house of Cornelius. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Friends, if that's not underlined in your Bible, particularly verse 14, it needs to be. As I stated at the outset, there is power in words. Words are powerful. Words have meaning, whether for good or for ill. There is power in words. And when it comes to preaching the Word of God, when it comes to preaching and teaching Bible precepts, Bible doctrines, what we read in verse 14 is that these are words whereby men's souls can be saved. That's the message. That's the content that we need. Now, Regarding the preaching of that message and that content, let it be noted here before I leave this entirely. Let's just go back to Titus. Go with me to Titus chapter 1. There have been some among us over the years, particularly maybe in the last 20 to 30 years, there have been some among us who have adopted this view of preaching that preaching should be, in their terminology, that it should be all positive. That preaching should really not, quote, step on toes, as we have heard it put through the years, but preaching should should cater to needs and should meet felt needs and should be positive and and leave all the hearers feeling better about themselves and, and on an up note, if you will. Well, folks, we need to evaluate that statement as we would any statement in light of Scripture in light of what we find in the Word of God. And hey, if it's congruent to what we find in the Word of God, then I'll stand behind it and I'll promote it and support it and I'm all for it. But frankly speaking, when we look to the Word of God, that's not what we see of biblical preaching. Now, by the same token, neither is what we see in the Word of God of biblical preaching and teaching all condemnation, all hellfire and brimstone, another statement we commonly hear, all beating people over the heads. It's not all of that either. I know you're in Titus. Let me just quote 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the Word. There's the message or the content. Be instant in season and out of season. And notice, reprove and rebuke. If you've ever been the recipient of some of that reproving or that rebuking, then you can agree with me, that's not very pleasant. People in the world might not describe that quote as being positive. But something I determined many, many years ago, and I've said it many times through the years, preaching and teaching, though it steps on my toes and though it may hurt my feelings in the moment, Preaching and teaching that calls me out of sin and keeps me out of hell, that's been a positive sermon. That's a positive message. Reprove, rebuke, and then notice, exhort. 
Something that people in the world would probably more readily recognize as positive or pleasant. To be exhorted, to be encouraged with all long-suffering. There needs to be a great measure of that in preaching and teaching and doctrine. And so it is when we look to the biblical model, what we find is balance. We find preaching that both warns and encourages. We see preaching that both rebukes and instructs. That's the message. That's the content found in the Word of God. And all of it needs to be expressed. All of it needs to be taught. I think about how Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that he had given them or taught them the whole counsel of of God. Friends, that's what we need. Those of us who have reared or are rearing children, we understand that though ice cream is nice, I love ice cream by the way, though ice cream is nice, you cannot give your children only a steady diet of bluebell ice cream. You can't do it. Oh, it's awfully pleasant. It's awfully sweet. And your children, if they live, if they're not diabetic, they'll become awfully wormy, as we say in Alabama. You can't do that. And so preaching the proper message involves preaching all of that message. Now, here as we look again to Titus chapter 1, let's move on quickly and let's talk about the motive. Let's talk about the motive. You and I know, and you don't need my standing up here to inform you that there are more people in this world preaching a contrary message, preaching false messages, than there are people in the world preaching the gospel, the true gospel. You know that, and I know that. But here at this second point, we ask the question, why? Why is that the case? Paul, in writing to Titus, he gives us an indicator Notice there in verse 11, regarding these false teachers, these deceivers, he says, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses. And by the way, you better believe it. False doctrine damages homes. False doctrine undermines families. False doctrine causes mamas and daddies not to be the people they need to be. Husbands and wives not to be the people they need to be. And children not to grow up being the people they need to be. That's what error does. It undermines families and homes. Teaching things which they ought not, and then here's the motive, point number two, for filthy lucre's sake. If I were to stand up here tonight and kind of rub my thumb against my fingers like this right here, you know what that means. In our culture, in our society, that's a gesture meaning money. And friends, we might as well call it like it is. So often the reason that error is vigorously and zealously propagated and proclaimed is because the proponents of error have learned that by tickling ears and preaching a message that appeals to the masses, there's a whole lot more of that in store for them. I'm sad to say it, but that's the way it is. I think about what Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 when he made mention of those false teachers in 2 Peter 2 who were making merchandise. They were making merchandise of their hearers 
Peter says they are privily, secretly bringing in these damnable heresies. Do you know what that means? A damnable heresy is a teaching, a false teaching, a false doctrine that will cost people their souls. That's why it's called damnable. He says there are these false teachers who are bringing in these damnable heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. And by the way, any false teacher that propagates error, and any hearer who espouses error, that's what we're doing. We are denying Jesus, His sacrifice, and His paying the price for us. That's what we're doing. And then Peter goes on to mention, they're making merchandise of you. It's about the money. (laughs) It's about the money. You reflect back to the somewhat comical, it would be comical if it were not so sad, the somewhat comical account in Numbers of Balaam. And Balaam, more than anything, Balaam wanted to say what Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to hear. He wanted to curse Israel, which by the way would have been error, because through Abraham, God had already determined to bless Israel, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Balaam so deeply wanted to contradict that. Balaam so badly wanted to go against that. He wanted to curse Israel and tell Balak, king of Moab, exactly what would tickle those royal ears. Why? Peter tells us later in 2 Peter chapter 2, because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. There's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of money in it. Friends, I realized years ago that I could not go into gospel preaching to win friends and influence people in the worldly meaning of that terminology. I can't go into it to win popularity contests. I can't go into it for filthy lucre's sake. But yet, that's the motive of many. The motive of many who preach and teach error. Well, what about the godly motive? Let's not leave this point without noticing the godly motive. Reflect with me on 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. It's one of my favorite verses. Back 25 or 26 years ago when I first began preaching, it was among the earliest verses that I ever memorized. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability that God giveth, or giveth, so that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. There's a key thing there in 1 Peter 4.11 I want you to notice with me. The ultimate motive of anyone who stands up to preach or anyone who takes a class back into one of these back classrooms to teach a a class on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, the ultimate motive of anyone who sits down at a kitchen table to try to teach a lost soul, here's the ultimate motive. It ought to be that God gets the glory. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. Now, so long as what I teach and what I preach is right here, the Word of God, guess who gets the glory? God. But the moment I deviate 
And the moment I get away from a thus saith the Lord, I get away from book, chapter, and verse, preaching or teaching, guess who then stands to get the glory? And it's not God. Oh no. It might be Cliff. It might be someone after whom Cliff has been reading. It might be some theologian or some philosopher. Whoever can be credited with that garbage that I'm teaching and preaching, he gets the glory, but God doesn't get the glory. The only way for God to get the glory is we have to stay with the message, number one, and that should be our motive, number two, that God be glorified. One other thing about the motive. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I love this. Years ago in the school of preaching, we were in chapel one day and a guy delivered a chapel sermon. And when he, uh, when he del- delivered that and pointed this out to me, I-, I-, I knew then that I had learned something really, really good. Look at John 1 verse 35. Again the next day after John, that is John the Immerser, not John the Apostle, John the Immerser stood and two of his disciples. Now these were were men that had been following John, men who were listening to John, men who were learning from John. Two of his disciples were standing there with him the next day. Verse 36, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, you and I might say, as Jesus walked by, John looked on him and he saith, Behold The Lamb of God. Now this is the motive of true gospel preaching and teaching. Verse 37. And the two disciples heard John speak and they followed Jesus. Oh man, that's a foreign concept right there to a lot of these so-called preachers and teachers today. Yes, sir. So many of these false teachers today, they preach and teach so that men and women will flock to them. Men and women will follow them. But John preached in such a way here that he lost two of his own disciples. And that's because that's what John was all about. John pointed people to Jesus. And friends, that's the motive. That's the true motive of gospel preaching and teaching. I don't want you to follow Cliff Goodwin. Cliff Goodwin's a nobody that will let you down. But if I can preach and teach the Word of God and you love Jesus, (laughs) you follow Jesus, Jesus will never let you down. And that's what I want. That's what I want. So we've talked about the message. We've talked about the motive. You might also remember it is, what will be my content? What will be my intent? The motive. What am I intending to do? Self-aggrandize? Put myself out there? Make money? Get popular? Or do I want people to follow Jesus and give God the glory? And now finally, manner number three, or point number three, as we go back to Titus, let's say something about the manner in which we do this. Now this is interesting what we find in Titus. In fact, it's obvious, and I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but I'm here to tell the truth, so I'm only here one night, I'm going to tell the truth while I'm here. It's obvious that the Apostle Paul was not politically correct. You know that, right? Go back with me to verse 12, Titus 1 and verse 12. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own. Now most sources 
agree that this was probably Epimenides, if I'm saying his name correctly. Historically, it's probably a, a poet, quote, prophet, Epimenides. He described the Cretans as always liars. You can't trust these people. They don't tell the truth. Evil beasts. You better not turn your back on them. Slow bellies. Idle gluttons. We would say in the south they're shiftless. They're shiftless. They're lazy. They don't work. They'd rather sit around and eat all the time and and just live decadent, profligate lifestyles. Is that a stereotype in verse 12? (laughs) Isn't that what someone would cry today? Don't stereotype. Folks, stereotypes normally exist because there's an element of truth to them. Now, I'm not saying they can't be abused. I understand that. Okay, I'm, I'm about to make the very point that will take us somewhere opposite of where you may think I am currently. But my point is, is if we don't start calling a spade a spade, and if we're so politically correct that we can't speak of things as they are, we are useless in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to call sin, sin. Okay, it's not an alternative lifestyle, it's sin. It's not each one choosing his or her own way to go to heaven, it's sin. Folks, it is what it is. And right here, Paul, in hearing this this very stereotypical statement, I mean, how in the world could Epimenides class all of the Cretans as evil beasts and liars and slow bellies? And then Paul comes with inspiration and stamps it and says the witness is true. Now, don't misunderstand me. As we discuss the manner the very opposite of what I'm trying to teach and preach here tonight is for you or me to ever be ugly. We have no biblical right to be ugly, to be mean-spirited, to be unkind, insensitive. I'm not teaching that. But what I am teaching is that we can pat people on the shoulder and pat people on the shoulder and mollify and beat around the bush, and we can do that all the way to a devil's hell. Both for them and for us. So what about this manner? How am I to go about teaching? How am I to go about preaching the Word of God? Well, first of all, and this is not in Titus, but I'm coming back to Titus. Let it be known that when we're preaching the gospel, brethren, this is not joke hour. Now, I like humor. Every once in a while, I will try to use elements of humor. I'm not very good at it, but I like to try sometimes. I like humor. And even in gospel preaching, there is a time and a place for elements of humor. I understand that. But folks, the pulpit is not to be reduced to comedy hour. It's not about a man getting up here to make you laugh. That's not what gospel preaching is about. Someone says, well, how do you know that from the Scripture? Go with me to the Sermon on the Mount. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5, just a moment. Matthew chapter 5. You know how the Holy Spirit never put anything in the Scriptures without a cause or without a reason, right? We understand that. 
Well, notice something in Matthew 5 that if you're like I was for the first 18 or so years of my life, I overlooked it. I didn't know the meaning or the significance of it. Look at Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain, and when He was set, His disciples came unto Him. Verse 2. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Is that a little bit redundant? Have you ever known a teacher giving an oral presentation not to open his mouth? Folks, it's in there for a reason. See, this is an idiom, a figure of speech. And what it denoted as it was used in this time and in this culture is that Jesus was about to make a solemn discourse. There was a gravity and a dignity and a solemnity attached to his preaching. Now that's one thing we need to say about the manner of our preaching and our teaching. Folks, when I or Brother Tony or any other man is up in this pulpit preaching and teaching the gospel, souls are hanging in the balance. They are. And one day I I will never be with this select group again in all likelihood. I will never be with all of you again until judgment. But on that day we'll all be there together. And on that day I will be judged by what I preached here tonight. Now you tell me, is this something grave and solemn and serious? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. It absolutely is. God help me, God help all of us to give the gospel the respect and the reverence that it deserves. But secondly, when we talk about this manner, go back with me to Titus chapter 1. Now, This is something here that I think warrants a little bit of explanation. I'm going to attempt to do that. You notice in verse 13, after Paul affirms the basic stereotype of Epimenides, he then says in verse 13, This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. I want you to know here tonight that Paul is not telling us that is always the manner in which to teach and preach. It's not always the manner. You've got to understand that with the Cretan people, you were dealing with the people of a very coarse culture, a very coarse constitution, if you will. People that if you were going to get their attention, you had better rebuke them sharply. But I'll be the first to stand up and tell you here tonight, you cannot treat everybody in that manner. Go with me to the book of Jude. The little book of Jude. Don't ask which chapter now. Go with me to Jude. And notice how Jude put this in verses 22 and 23. And of some have compassion. Some, notice this distinction. Sometimes when I'm teaching and preaching or talking privately with an individual, I might be dealing with a sincere soul that is struggling with sin. He or she is fighting to their best ability to overcome this. What do they need? Me to come in there and beat them over the head with the Bible? No, that's probably not what they need. And if some have compassion, making a difference. Verse 23, 
Others, save with fear. Some people, you've got to put the fear of God into their hearts before you'll ever get their attention. And others save with fear, snatching them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Folks, I wish, I wish that I knew a pad answer to leave you when it comes to the manner, but I don't have it. I think the scriptures indicate and I think wisdom would require that we have to deal with every situation, every person, Potentially a little bit different. The manner. Some need fear. Some need compassion. Some need rebuking sharply. Others need pulling aside privately. I think about Apollos in Acts 18. They just need to be pulled aside privately and taught a little bit better. And then they'll have it. And then they'll run with it. And God give me the wisdom. God help me. God help you. To have the wisdom to know the difference and to make the difference, as Jude says. You've got to make a difference in your manner as you're dealing with different people in different situations. Now, whatever the manner or whatever the situation calls for, let's wrap up with this verse found in Colossians 4 and verse 6. This is one of my sister's favorite verses, especially in her college years. Many years ago, I remember her saying this. Colossians 4 and verse 6. Let your speech, that's what we're dealing with, words. Let your speech be always with grace. Be as gracious as you can. Be as generous as you're allowed. Be kind and sympathetic. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Find a way to make your words as easily swallowable as possible. I love pinto beans, but I don't want pinto beans without some salt. It's just the way it is. Lest your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, and Paul adds, so that ye might know how. That's the $64,000 question. How ye ought to answer every man. God help us with the message, with the motive, and with the manner. Let's close our Bibles now. We're about to extend the Lord's invitation. Friend, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a child of God, we're not playing church. And we're not interested in calling or inviting you to play church. Your soul is the most precious possession that you have. The most precious thing you will ever possess will be your soul. And Jesus died to secure the salvation of your soul. Do you believe on Him? John 3 and verse 16. Do you believe on Jesus strongly enough that you're willing to repent? To make the conscious decision of the will in which you choose to turn away from the practice of sin. Acts 17 and verse 30. Do you believe in Jesus strongly enough to confess Him even before witnesses? 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. And do you believe in Jesus strongly enough recognizing that Jesus is your only hope? 
that you're willing to unite with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And you do that in baptism. Romans 6, 3 and verse 4. Not baptism because you've been saved. The Bible doesn't know anything of that notion. The Bible teaches us to be baptized in order to be saved. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. Friend, are you ready to become a Christian? We're serious about this thing here tonight. And if you're ready to be serious about your devotion and your following of Christ, we want to help you. Brother or sister, if you're here this evening and there's sin in your life of any nature, if it's of a private nature, resolve to make it right and make it right with God privately. But brother or sister, if it's of a public nature, we stand ready tonight not to criticize or condemn. We stand ready tonight to comfort and console as you confess sin in your life penitently and as you ask for our prayers, we can pray with you and for you. And the Bible says God will forgive you. God loves you. We love you enough to tell you the truth. And we hope you'll come as we stand and as we sing.